1: Today's podcast was recorded before we got the stunning news of Tuesday night's Democratic victories in Virginia and Kentucky. Nation magazine. This is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Weiner. This week, we are one year away from the election where Donald Trump will be seeking four more years in power. We'll review the situation with John Nichols. And today, we'll also talk about socialism. Paul Adler will explain. His new book is The 99% Economy. Also, one of our favorite writers has a new book out, John Le Carré. It's called Agent Running in the Field. It's number five on the bestseller list. He's now 88 years old. He's written 26 books. They've been published in over 50 countries and 40 languages. The books are about loyalty and betrayal. John Powers will comment. He's critic at large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. But first... Election Day is one year from now. For comment and analysis, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation and host of the Next Left podcast. John, welcome back.
2: It is an honor to be with you, my friend.
1: So where do we stand one year out? The highest rated poll is from ABC News and The Washington Post. It's also the most recent, out on Tuesday. And it shows that among registered voters, Bernie is beating Trump by 14 points, 55 to 41. Elizabeth Warren is beating him by 15 points. And Joe Biden is beating Trump by 17 points, 56 to 39. Even Mayor Pete, it says, would beat him by 11 if the election were held today. That's for the national popular vote. But, but... The New York Times Upshot poll, which is done with Siena College and is also ranked very highly, they polled state by state in the swing states and they found that Trump remains, in their words, highly competitive in the battleground states likeliest to decide his re-election. They're talking about Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, Arizona, and North Carolina. So together, these polls suggest that The Democrats will win the popular vote, probably by a lot, but Trump has a 50-50 chance or something like that of winning the Electoral College again. What do you think about that? I think it's a big deal.
2: And I think it's the way that any conversation about 2020 should begin. And that is with the fact that a majority Arguably, an overwhelming majority of Americans don't want Donald Trump to be president of the United States. It remains the truth now when polling shows that clear pluralities, in some cases majorities, favor not just the impeachment of Donald Trump, but in many polls, the removal of Donald Trump from office. And yet, as unpopular as he is, as failed as he is as a president, he has a chance of being reelected because of something that happened in 1787. (laughs) And that was the creation of the Electoral
1: College. Let's talk about the reasons why Trump, a year from now, might do worse in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, Arizona, and North Carolina. For starters, he's going to be impeached.
2: It's likely that the Senate doesn't remove him from office but I never even ruled that out until we get there on the assumption he isn't removed. However, he will become a unique figure in American history. The first president to seek reelection after having been impeached. That is damaging. It, it is a factor that, that could undermine his reelection. There's a lot of other factors as well, by the way. I mean, th- the truth of the matter is that our economy is not nearly so healthy or stable as Trump and people around him tend to think, uh, there is indeed the vulnerability the possibility of a slowdown. That slowdown, uh, I think, would be absolutely devastating to him politically. The damage he's done to farmers and farm country is real and it has the potential to shift a lot of uh, voting patterns in states around the country. And then finally, there is just the reality of Trump which has the tremendous potential to mobilize and unite great masses of people, both to come
1: out and vote and to vote against it. Well, these are polls of registered voters and likely voters. You and I have been saying for many years now that the democratic strategy is not to win the likely voters, it's to expand the pool of likely voters, to bring in people who have not voted in the past, young people, people of color, uh, women who didn't vote last time around, all of whom are potentially part of the Democratic base. Bernie knows this. Elizabeth Warren knows this. I'm not sure that Joe Biden knows this. He seems more focused on the likely voters, which is who the polls are, Focused on. Let's talk about the difference between the likely voters and the potential voters.
2: That's a it's a hugely significant reality. I mean, America has dramatically underperforming electri- electoral participation. If we had the seventy percent plus turnout that you saw in Germany, the eighty percent plus turnout that you see in Scandinavian countries, and, and these are places with real political divides, with a left and a right. And, hard difficult issues that they're dealing with but if you if you had that level of turnout we'd already have single-payer health care system yes. right we'd already have you know free college or at least very very affordable college I mean, many of the things that bernie sanders for instance and elizabeth warren are talking about are things that you get from a high turnout election from a high turnout pattern of elections because at a certain point when you expand that electorate it moves left now in our circumstance, it doesn't move left, by the way, on every issue, and that's where you get some of the complexities of Europe, but it moves left enough on a, on a set of basic programs. And so because we are underdeveloped as a democracy, we have a situation where uh, a tremendous number of people, frankly, don't see government as having the potential to deliver Government is having the potential to do something fundamental in their lives and and be truly beneficial to them. For the Democrats, if they want to expand their base, they cannot simply say that they want to replace Donald Trump. Because for a tremendous number of voters, and particularly a lot of young voters, a lot of disenfranchised voters, getting rid of Trump seems like a great idea. They're fine with that. But there's that deeper question of, well, what comes next? How does You know, what's the benefit of this thing? And so uh, to expand the electorate, which is going to be absolutely necessary, Democrats have to nominate someone who's got the ability to excite folks who frankly don't have tremendous confidence in the political process. It has to be, you know, I dare say, a revolutionary message.
1: So the Democrats' strategy should be to expand the electorate. And you and I have been saying for many years now, That the Republican strategy of countering this is voter suppression, making it harder for people to vote, voter ID, purging the voting rolls, closing polling places in black neighborhoods and student neighborhoods. Where do we stand right now on voter suppression? But it's it's a real factor that
2: that there
1: are forms of suppression
2: that are in play. Um, When we're going to talk about suppression, as long as we're doing it, let's let's do it in the right way. Let's look at all the, the factors. And remember, the Electoral College is the first form of voter suppression, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, gerrymandering is voter suppression because it makes people say, well, it just doesn't matter whether I vote. Money in politics, especially negative TV ads that play out of money in politics, you know, those ads are there to suppress the vote. They're there to make people, you know, say, oh, all the candidates are the same. Why bother? So there's a lot of forms of voter suppression. What we're really talking about here is structural suppression done by the state. And as we talk about, you know, this mobilizing bringing new voters in, you know, many of those new voters have to be registered. They will have to jump through the hoops that have been erected. And so the process becomes more difficult. The key thing is it can, as Jesse Jackson always says, it can be addressed as bad as voter suppression is in most cases, you can get ahead of it. But the thing is, You have to start very, very early. You have to get people registered. You have to get people engaged. You ideally have to, you know, have them voting in primaries along the way so that they, they kind of, they're comfortable with it. The process is playing. And, and so that means that, uh, what the Wisconsin Democratic Party did, uh, last weekend made the biggest deal thing for 2020. The Wisconsin Democratic Party, one year out, had a weekend of door-knocking, mobilization, going into uh, neighborhoods that have traditionally not had the highest turnouts and doing every house, not just looking at a voter list, but going to a lot more people with the idea of building out that electric. Um I can tell you that in watching what's going on in Wisconsin, I'm pretty confident that they could pull it off. I suspect that they can move Wisconsin – into a a state where Democrats can win. Um, But it's an immense amount of hard work. And you know what? It costs a ton of money. And even now, in the politics, in the political processes of of our country, you have folks who say, oh, no, we've got to save money for television ads at the end of the campaign. We've got to raise a whole bunch of money for media campaigns. Let me tell you this. To win in 2020, candidates and parties ought to be spending money now, right now, to build out, to organize and build out that base, uh, frankly, to to expand that electorate uh, for November 2020. If they're not doing it now, they run the risk of not pulling it off because of the suppression factor. And I'll put one more suppression thing on the table just for people to be aware of, and that is uh, the assault on trade unions. Unions have historically been a, a huge force immobilizing turnout, and frankly, in, in getting portions of the electorate that, that might have you know, some tendency, some openness to voting for a Donald Trump, frankly. The unions have been very, very good historically at counterbalancing, at challenging that. Um, unfortunately, Michigan is now a right-to-work state, a right-to-work anti-labor state. Wisconsin is now a right-to-work anti-labor state. Indiana is now a right to work, anti-labor state. These are all states, by the way, that voted, you know, have voted very comfortably for Democrats in the past. It's become much harder. The diminishing of trade unions has to be put in the
1: mix. John Nichols, read him at com and listen to him on the Next Left podcast. Thank you, John. Always great to have you on the show.
2: It's a great honor to be with you, my friend.
1: Now it's time to talk about socialism. The Gallup poll found last summer that 51% of young Americans aged 18 to 29 say they're positive about socialism compared to 45% who feel positive about capitalism. That's a 12-point decline in young adults' positive views of capitalism in just the past two years. But what is socialism? Paul Adler has been thinking about that He teaches management, environmental studies, and sociology at USC. Now he has a new book out. It's called The 99% Economy, How Democratic Socialism Can Overcome the Crises of Capitalism. Paul Adler, welcome to the program.
3: Great to be with you, John.
1: We face now giant problems. Let's assume everybody knows the problems. Global warming, wealth inequality, economic instability, inadequate health care poor public education, sexism and racism. And our other problem is that our politics fails to solve any of these big problems. The question is an old one. What is to be done? The answer, you argue, is socialism. And the root cause of our problems is capitalism, production for profit. Of course, that's not obvious to most people. Why blame capitalism for all these different things?
3: yeah all we suffer many different problems in society today and they all have many different causes capitalism as such isn't the only cause but i do argue that it's the root cause And in particular, my argument is that as long as the core of the economy operates on these capitalist principles where firms compete for profit rather than cooperating to solve our problems, where employees are just employees, they're not people who share ownership and control in their enterprises, in such a society, government is really restricted in its ability to solve these big problems we face. So yeah, the root cause as I see it is capitalism and If we're going to solve these big problems, then we need to move to some very different economic system. There's all sorts of improvements we can make in our life if we implement much more modest reforms of the kind that the Democratic candidates are talking about. But if we want to overcome these big ones, I just don't see how we get there without a really fundamental change in the way our economy works.
1: You say we need to change the way enterprises make decisions about work, about investments, about their products. Quoting from your book, these decisions need to be made not by corporate leaders looking to maximize profits, but democratically. We need more democracy. We need a lot more democracy. But, of course, a lot of people are skeptical about that. About 45% of the voting age population did not vote in 2016. That's something like 140 million people who could have voted but but didn't, and I'm not sure that the 63 million people who voted for Trump have good ideas about uh, global warming or sexism or racism. So I wonder if you perhaps you should reconsider your enthusiasm for democracy.
3: Yeah, people have plenty good reasons to be skeptical of democracy as they see it working now, and. Again, there's many factors that explain that skepticism and that I think justify that skepticism. In particular, it does seem to me above and beyond all the ways in which the business community subverts the popular will uh, through the various channels of corruption, corporate donations and so forth. Above and beyond those factors, there's also just the fact that any government, no matter how well-intentioned, can't do very much to hurt the profits of the business sector without massive economic crisis ensuing. Uh, Massive unemployment would then in turn undermine the legitimacy of the government. So even the best intentioned governments uh, have a difficult time acting on the popular will and dealing with big issues we face. But I think more generally, we face an interesting problem that I've, it struck me, was akin to the problem that Aristotle faced in ancient Greece. Aristotle I'm told, was a very smart man, he gives all the appearances of considerable intelligence and insight and compassion, but nevertheless couldn't for the life of him imagine democracy leading to anything else but chaos and rule by the rabble. Extending the franchise to women, let alone to slaves, was just beyond his imagination. And a couple of thousand years later, here we are, pretty comfortable in our conviction that democracy, with all its flaws and warts, is probably the best political system. Socialism, as I understand it, is essentially the expansion of that democratic decision making process to the economic realm. And just like Aristotle couldn't imagine political democracy working on an expansive frame, I think we suffer the same kind of problem in imagining the expansion of democratic decision making to the economic domain.
1: Yeah, one of the most interesting parts of your book to me was the argument that we democratic socialists can learn a lot about decision making by understanding some of our largest corporations like Walmart and Amazon. I always thought Walmart and Amazon were the, were the enemy of the people, not something that provided a glimpse of utopia. W- what do you mean?
3: Yes, I get that this part of my book may f- feel a bit provocative to uh, folks already sort of in the socialist camp. The way I've been thinking of it is that we need to give people some vision of what this better world would look like. It's not easy to find examples to refer to. Socialism in the 21st century is, is, is has to be very different from socialism in the 20th century. The Soviet Union, China, these don't provide great models for us. They're certainly not inspiring models for lack of democracy, for one thing, but also because they were not very efficient, effective economies. They didn't provide the goods for people. They helped those very authoritarian forms of socialism, helped draw those countries out of very primitive conditions. But once they reached a level of sort of industrialization, then the next stage of economic development was beyond their reach, the lack of democracy above all. So where do we go looking for examples of what it means to plan in a democratic way, on a large scale, a complex economy? It struck me that many of our CEOs are closet socialists. They, They talk about the importance of competition in their relation in the relations between their business and the other businesses they're competing against. But internally, most of these businesses operate like planned economies. Hmm. So that idea itself is not so new that these big corporations are typically islands of planning and a sea of competition. What I did that was a bit new was I said, I went to look at the way these corporations undertake this planning and realized that they confront the same kinds of problems in miniature that the socialist economies of the Soviet Union and China faced when they were trying to plan. They also encounter important challenges in assuring innovation and efficiency, worker motivation, and some of them, the ones that take what we call the high road approach to competition, try to leverage the creativity of their employees. They try to reach down into the organization to mobilize ideas from middle managers and from frontline employees too sometimes about what their strategic goals should look like and how they could implement them. So they, those organizations also experience the same challenges of democracy that we will encounter in a socialist planned economy. My idea was simply that the smarter of these corporations have act, have confronted these challenges in a pretty interesting way. If we squint a little bit and abstract from all the terrible things that Amazon and Google and Toyota and Kaiser Permanente, all the terrible things that they do, if we squint a little bit and observe them on their better days, we can, we actually have a working model of what planning would look like Obviously, if we wanted to make this truly socialist, the democracy element, dimension, would need to be greatly deepened and expanded. That obviously is a serious limitation, but we also get some glimpses of what that might look like. And then in terms of what these organizations do to ensure efficiency, innovation, and motivation, there we got some pretty interesting ideas that I think would be easy to imagine scaling up to ensure the, the planning at a national level would be uh, would have all the attributes that we need.
1: Of course, lurking in the background of this conversation are... Uh, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. Bernie is a democratic socialist. Elizabeth Warren describes herself as a capitalist. Outline for us what you see as the differences, because a lot of people think they're pretty much the same.
3: I think their programs are pretty much the same. Uh, Bernie's probably pulled Elizabeth Warren to the left on many of these, and more power to him for having done so. But both of them, I think, can be fairly described. their platforms, policies can be fairly described as social democratic. So, t- to that extent, I'm all for it, but I don't think it gets us where we need to go. Why do I think Bernie's the more important candidate? The distinction, I think, is essentially boils down to this, that Bernie Sanders understands that if we restrict ourselves to policies with which the business community can can reconcile itself, then we will never get anywhere near close to even the social democratic reforms that Warren is proposing. The business community is going to strike back, and we've already seen evidence of that in the news in the business pages. They're mobilising ferociously to to slap down her candidacy. Let's imagine a Warren presidency and a and, and a democratic controlled House and Senate. As soon as she starts to implement that program, the opposition of the business community is going to be ferocious. What mass movement is going to be pushing back on that community? What has Warren done to build that mass movement? Nothing. Her campaign is an electoral campaign. Bernie at least understands that... If we try to implement these kinds of policies, it's going to be a struggle, and we're going to need a mass movement to push for to put pressure on Congress in order to make this happen. And that's the big difference for me between Bernie and Sanders, not in their policy recommendations so much as the constant drumbeat in the Sanders campaign that we need to be building a kind of mass movement that enable us to resist the pushback we're certainly going to encounter from the business community.
1: In your book, The 99% Economy, you say you are hopeful and optimistic. Many of us find this optimism amazing. We want to know why you are hopeful and optimistic.
3: Let me answer that in three parts. First, I think in the longest sweep of history, there are lots of things on on socialism's side. As capitalism develops, we see ever more concentration which makes it a lot easier to imagine nationalizing vast spans of industry. We can nationalize Walmart with a stroke of a pen. Nationalizing the 100,000 retail stores that Walmart has displaced over the past couple of decades would have been a gargantuan, really difficult task. Secondly, uh, capitalism in its development has developed a increasingly sophisticated working class, notwithstanding your... Uh, frustration with the way many working people voted in the last 2016 elections. These are more educated people, people more aware of the world than was the case in the working class 50 or 100 years ago. Maybe their class instincts have been dulled, but their level of education has improved. And that I think is an enormous resource for a socialist movement. And then thirdly, I think the level of frustration we see today between what could be with all the technology and resources we have, and what the misery of working people that working people experience today, that sharpens people's motivation for change. So in the big sweep of things, my first point would be in the big sweep of things, I think we have a reason for optimism. In the shorter term, I think we also can be optimistic for another reason, which is that there are a number of crises that loom, and those crises can be crucibles for quite rapid and radical change in people's mindsets the environmental crisis is going to envelop us very quickly and we're going to be soon confronted with very dramatic choices about not about how strong the government's intervention in the economy is going to be but whether it's going to be democratic or totalitarian we are going to encounter economic crises uh, they've been held in abeyance for a couple of years but another 2008 is more than likely it's very likely and in the, that kind of moment i think we can also see Opportunities for radicalization, rapid radicalization. And then, thirdly, if either of these more progressive candidates is elected to the White House, there'll be a political crisis. And that political crisis, too, can be a crucible for change.
1: Paul Adler, his new book is The 99% Economy How Democratic Socialism Can Overcome the Crises of Capitalism. Paul, thanks for coming in today. Thank you, John. One of our favorite writers has a new book out, John Le Carré. It's called Agent Running in the Field. He's now 88 years old. He's written 26 books, which have been published in 50 countries and 40 languages. They're about loyalty and betrayal. Many are about the ambiguities of the Cold War. Our protagonist in the new Le Carré is Nat. He's a 47-year-old veteran of Britain's secret intelligence service. He believes his years running agents in the field are over. He's been put out to pasture by headquarters at a place called The Haven, a decrepit building in the back streets of North London that we are told is the office's home for lost dogs. For comment, we turn to John Powers. He's best known as critic-at-large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. His reviews are heard by something like 3 million people on every NPR station in the country. He's also been a film critic for Vogue and, before that, the L.A. Weekly. And he's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and The Nation. His books include "Sore Winners. It's about George Bush's America. And WKW, about the wonderful Hong Kong director Wong Kar Wai. John Powers, welcome back. Glad to be here. So, Nat, our protagonist, is not only a runner of Spies. He's also a passionate badminton player. Tell us about his regular opponent, Ed.
4: Well, he he is the champion at his local club. And one day he's just won a match, and this young man comes bullying his way up and insists on playing him, this guy named Ed. And at first he doesn't want to, but the guy's just so insistent that he finally agrees to play Ed. And so they begin playing, and Ed turns out to be a really good badminton player. So they kind of bond and they would play badminton and afterwards they will go have a beer. And over beer, Ed will talk about how much he hates Brexit, how much he hates Trump, and basically be
1: outraged by the state of where the way the country is going. And, and that's their relationship. Ed does have a certain kind of eloquence. He calls Brexit an unmitigated clusterfuck, an act of self-immolation, in which the british public is being marched over a cliff by a bunch of rich elitist carpetbaggers posing as men of the people so ed is the kind of wild and crazy guy in contrast to our protagonist nat who it gets to be the calm and reasonable one
4: yes and and the interesting thing is that nat essentially agrees with ed on brexit and trump but of course he he he's suave. And Ed is comes from a, re- a kind of a religious background of the kind that E.P. Thompson used to write about, where he's a true believer. And so, therefore, he's passionate and unironic, whereas Nat's job has always been to be the slick, charming one. So, you never quite know what he thinks, except we know because he's the narrator of the book, and we know that he essentially agrees with Ed.
1: And Ed is really not very appealing. He's kind of unpleasant. He's kind of awkward kind of a loser socially and and politically he's utterly predictable.
4: Yes, he seems like a cliche of something and he doesn't fit into his world. You know and as as you're reading you don't know where this is going to go. You know he's important because it's a John le Carré novel and the book begins with a badminton challenge that clearly has to mean something. <laughs> And because he's named Ed, you think, oh, you know, is he Edward Snowden? Is he Edward R. Murrow? Is, you know, there are lots of Eds out there. And so you're trying to figure out what he's going to be, but you, you really, you just know he matters, but you don't know why.
1: And there's another character on the team of misfits and losers. There's one who doesn't fit in, and it's a young woman named Florence Flo. Tell us about her.
4: Florence is sort of a rising star, but the one fear that the service has about her is that she feels, maybe feels things too intensely. She's too emotional. She hasn't yet learned to be as cold-blooded as the most classically cold-blooded one is George Smiley. They're training her in the haven in order to make her less human than than she is. Her politics seem once again to be kind of aligned to the anti-Brexit, anti-Trump thing, but that's less explicit than in the case of Ed.
1: Agent Running in the Field is being promoted by the publisher as Le Carre's Brexit book. Seems to me it's more than that.
4: Oh, it is. Well, I mean, Brexit doesn't really figure in so much. I mean, it does figure in in the sense that the, the character Ed is constantly attacking Brexit. But it fits into, the, I think, the larger pattern of Le Carre's books about, especially the British ruling classes, delusional desire to matter and feel important in the world. So it's also a book about... Keeping Europe Together. It's a book about one of, one of the great Lacare themes is the way that the United States is the big bully boy. And that although Lacare dislikes the U.S. for that, what he really dislikes are the people of his social class sucking up to the U.S. in order to have an illusion that they have are powerful in matter in the world. You know, all the way through the books, that's like one of the great underlying themes.
1: Yeah. And while Ed is obsessed with Brexit, Florence has her own preoccupations. She's concerned about the crimes of the super rich. Uh, There's a Ukrainian oligarch who she wants to spy on, who's connected to the Putin circles. So she's got different preoccupations. As for Le Carre himself, he's done some interviews promoting the book where he describes himself politically as basically a a liberal Democrat, and he sees the embattled democratic forces of Europe and the United States threatened by this unlikely alliance of Trump and Putin. In some ways, he seems more committed now to the liberal democracies of the West facing Putin than he did in the 60s and 70s when the United States and Britain were facing the Soviet Union. Is that a fair statement?
4: I think it's a fair statement. I think partly because... The books that he was writing in the 60s and 70s, he was still more steeped in the fictional world that he created where the Cold War provided the, the political structure for everything and then he could then write about someone like Smiley who was of course the great Le Carre hero but, but not actually heroic. If you if you follow Smiley's career outside of the books where he's like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy where he's bringing you know bringing Carla the Soviet bigwig you know capturing him somehow. If you leave that aside Smiley in early your books sends people off to their death. He gets people to believe things, knowing that it will kill them, and still has them go do it. And, and Lacry was always filled with the ambivalence about that, but it never seemed politically big in the way that it seemed since I think since the end of the Cold War, because uh, I think the Cold War pro- provided a framework against which he could work. But once he had to provide his own framework, I think his own his own political belief became increasingly strong in the books.
1: Yeah, there's a wonderful line in the book where one of Le Carré's characters describes the foreign secretary as a, quote, fucking Etonian narcissistic elitist without a decent conviction in his body bar his own advancement. This has been a preoccupation of Le Carré really since the spy who came in from the cold. His father
4: famously was a professional con man. And this is, I think, prepared him more than most to look at politicians and government officials and see which ones are essentially con men. In this case, the foreign secretary is, you know, may well have been, at this point, Boris Johnson when he was writing the book. And Boris Johnson does seem very much like the kind of con man that his father was, able to seem charming. I mean, he, has, he knows a lot of the con men tricks.
1: And while Le Carre, you know, loathes the upper-class twits who run uh, Britain— He's not at all romanticizing the spies. There's another classic Lucarre line where he says that spies are not, quote, saints or martyrs. Instead, they're a squalid procession of vain fools, traitors, sadists, and drunkards, people who play cowboys and Indians to brighten their rotten lives, close quote. This comes from the spy who came in from the cold, 1963. Would you say in this book he still feels the same way about MI six that he did back in 1963? Oh, I think he does. I mean, I think the, I think the continuous thing with him is
4: that he does think it's a nasty, dirty business, serving different kinds of masters over the years, and he doesn't like any of the masters either. I mean, in a way, I always thought that part of the Licare thing is that he does what the Godfather movie did, which was take people who are doing ghastly stuff, yet making the world they're in so much fun to be inside, that you wind up identifying with people you know are objectively loathsome. And, you know, over the, over the years, I think he's tried to make it more explicit. Although Spy Who Came In From The Cold is about basically the classic Lacare thing, betrayal. If, which is you take people's beliefs, get them to work for you, in order to sell them out for your personal advantage. And almost every book contains some version of that al- along the way. That is his sense of what spying is. Yet, as a person who's read all of the books, you know some of them more than once, I love being inside that world, which serves one valuable function because you then understand like, how those people love being inside that world. Because you're always interpreting, there are people wearing masks, it's always exciting and interesting in a way that ordinary life sometimes feels that it
1: isn't. And that world is quickly becoming the world of the past as far as intelligence services go. One of the things we learned from Edward Snowden was about the difference between human intelligence, humint as they call it, and sigint, signals intelligence. That's the mass data gathering of metadata, of billions of phone calls and Facebook posts and text messages and Google searches Le Carre's spies have all these human frailties. They have ambitions and secret loves and blindness and loyalty and as you say betrayal. And none of this exists in the new world of algorithms doing the metadata collection.
4: In the French spy series, The Bureau, which which is a terrific series and, and people should watch, you, you can see how the basically how the tech world is entering their world,
1: yet yet Part of the greatness of the show is you never lose the human side of it. Well, the classic Le Carre books don't have happy endings. From the very beginning, we've talked about it many times, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold. The end is remorse, betrayal, maybe even despair. What about the end of this book? Well, I don't want to give too much away, with it, but I would say that over the years, Le Carre
4: has has gotten less bleak. In the context, I think, of spy novels, he's still bleak. You know, because most of them do have the hero winning, whereas Lecarre, ev- you always do something where, even where the hero wins, somehow the hero pays for winning—that you sacrifice yourself in order to win. But, but nevertheless, maybe because he's gotten older, and at least, at least I know as I've gotten older, I'm less purely drawn to things that just end in bleakness and death. Maybe because I can feel myself tending in that direction <laughs> myself. <laughs> yeah. But you know, he's eighty-eight and i think somehow at a time of especially among his class of kind of widespread despair over the state of things i think i think he doesn't he's not going to give you an ending that's like spy who came
1: in from the cold where it's basically all ruined in the new book we rush relentlessly towards a stunning climax on the last page our heroes disappear into the sunset is this goodbye from john le carre
4: I don't think so. I mean, I mean because he can't stop writing. He talks about it in interviews, but it's clearly true. Philip Roth, I think when he hit 80, packed it in and just thought, yeah, where's I mean, one of the good things about being a genre writer is that you in a way you don't have the same kind of literary reputation to shepherd. Whereas Roth had done all these books, and I I think he thought he had had a great 30 years and didn't want to start writing lesser books. Whereas if if you're you're writing spy novels, somehow you never get to be considered in the conversation of the great writers of your time. So therefore, you don't have to, but you can just write the books that interest you. And it's probably his way of engaging with contemporary reality. And I think when you're in your 80s, it's so easy to feel like that's slipping away from you, that by constantly following a story— And being involved in it, it actually keeps you part of the world in a way you feel you might not otherwise be. So I'm expecting another one.
1: We've been speaking with John Powers about the new book by John Le Carré. It's called Agent Running in the Field. John, thanks for coming in today. I was happy to be here. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of the nation. Katrina Vanden is publisher and editorial director of the nation. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com. And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.
0: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas?